the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There is so much that could be said about this passage or in relation to this passage. So many responses to this passage, volumes and volumes have been written, either describing what it means or describing what the author believes it doesn't mean. Uh, You could spend a lifetime only reading what's already been written on this passage. We can't do that this morning, obviously. And there is in this passage one big deal. There's something that's at stake here, something that is really good for marriage, and something that's bigger than marriage. Something that's bigger than your marriage, if you're married. Something that's bigger than human marriage at all, in any sense. That's where Paul is going to go, and that's where I want to keep us aimed this morning, in the short time that we have. So there is a lot that we could talk about. There might be a lot that you would like to talk about. If there is, with regard to marriage, then by all means, let's talk. Catch me afterwards or catch me at another time. There probably will be something important about marriage that I don't say as I walk through this passage. If you'd like to talk about it, please come find me. When Paul says, here's the big deal, what he means is this. God has given strategic roles to husbands and wives in order to show the rescuing love of Jesus for his people. That's the point of marriage. That's what marriage is for. He's going to become clear about that. He'll hint at that as he describes the individual roles of wives and of husbands. And then he will bring that into full light at the end of our passage this morning. So when he says, here's the big deal, he also says, here's how to live out that big deal in the specific strategic role assigned by God for a wife. And here's how to live out that big deal in the specific strategic role assigned to God, assigned by God to husbands. Here's how to do this in a thoughtful and fruitful way. He speaks more briefly and first to wives. And here's what he says. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. When the original recipients of the letter heard that in the original language, they would have heard Something that could probably best be paraphrased. Wives, arrange your role under the role of your husband. That's what submission 
is. That's the way that the word is used more broadly in the Bible to arrange your role under the role of another, which doesn't mean see your role as less important than the role of another. It does mean that your role is different. Paul says to wives, arrange yourself in relation to your husband in the same way that the church arranges itself in relation to Christ. He summarizes that by saying, the church submits to Christ. The church says to Jesus, in our relationship, you lead and we will follow. Jesus has a job, as it were, that he's chosen in relationship to his church to lead the church to a place of wholeness and to a place of unhindered relationship. If you're a wife, then your husband has a parallel job in your relationship. He has the responsibility to lead you for your good. And he has something else that he needs in order to lead you. He has been given by God what's described here as headship. We could call it authority. He's been given the authority that he needs to carry out his responsibility. He didn't sign up for that responsibility. And he wasn't asked. The responsibility was given to him by God. He also didn't sign up for the necessary authority. And he wasn't asked. It was given to him by God. Verse 23 describes that responsibility and that authority by saying that the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So if you're a wife, then you have the responsibility and the privilege of cooperating with the role that's been entrusted to your husband a role he didn't even know he was signing up for when you got married, or at least he didn't know it fully. That responsibility and that privilege is true and real, even when his leading is imperfect, which it always will be to some degree. Now, take a deep breath, because I've used a couple of words that I know have been loaded with baggage by centuries of human experience. You use the word submission, you use the word authority, and they are heard in a particular way, aren't they? Centuries of abuse that have been done in small ways and in very big ways in the names of submission and of authority. And it can be very easy because those terms have been so loaded with baggage by human experience to assume that the things they really refer to are not good at all that authority is something to be rejected, that submission is something to be thrown off. That's not the way that it's described here. And in the end, we know that it's really not true. We know that authority, in its truest form, while it looks so different from the way authority is so often used, it's a good thing. Because where does authority come from in the first place? Who has authority by nature of who he is. Well, God does. Everything about God is good, including his authority. And so we can know that the real version of authority is a good thing. 
you you know in your own experience, whether you're a man or a woman, a child or adult, you know that this is true from your own experience as well. Have you ever been put in a place of responsibility for something, responsibility to accomplish something, to lead in a particular direction, and you haven't been given the necessary authority to do it? Well, it's frustrating to do, right? I, I was put in that position uh, several years ago in a job that I had. I was hired to be a coordinator of uh, uh, IT technicians for a, uh, a computer networking company. I was hired as the coordinator, and I was responsible to make sure that our techs were getting to where they needed to be, that their, their jobs were coordinated properly, and it turned out that I was also responsible in some form to make sure that they were doing what they were supposed to be doing. The problem was I was given no authority to actually get them to do it. I wasn't even named as a manager. I was named as a coordinator. A coordinator is somebody who can work with spreadsheets, but they're not somebody who has the recognized ability to tell someone, here's what you need to do. Because if I were to tell that to our techs, they would probably tell me, well, who says? And I could say me, and they would say, what difference does that make? Because I was never put in a position of named ability to tell somebody where they ought to be at any given time. So even on a practical level, there is a certain kind, a very specific kind of authority that's needed to carry out the responsibility that's given to husbands. That's true at the very highest level. And I hope this is the place where we can see some of that baggage thrown off. 1 Corinthians 15, 28. Authority and submission weren't put in place after sin entered the world. We can see that because we still see authority and submission in place when sin is completely removed. 1 Corinthians 15, 28. When all things are subjected to him, that is to Jesus, when all things are put in submission to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Here's the Son, subject, submitted to the Father. But because the Son is inferior to the Father? Not at all. This is a place of complete joy, of complete cooperation. And still we see the Son submitted to the Father in a world where all is completely set right. So chapter 1 describes all things being submitted to the Son. Chapter 1 of Ephesians describes all things being submitted to the Son. It says that he was given as head over all things, as head over all things to the church. In other words, the headship of Jesus is a gift to the church. It's a gift of protection against all other powers. It's a gift of provision. It's a gift of wise leading. The same thing, in a parallel way, is true for wives in their response to the parallel role that's given to their husbands. I want you to hang in there because that role is going to be described in just a few minutes. It may not be exactly what we would expect when we hear these categories described. 
In the meantime, it's helpful to ask in a positive way, what does submission actually mean? What does it actually look like in marriage? What should we expect it to look like? Paul does say, wives, submit in everything to your husbands. Probably the best way to understand what that means is is not to submit in every conceivable way. In other words, there are absolutely no exceptions to this whatsoever. He has already said, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And so if there's a situation where your husband tells you, you know, you really ought to uh, berate the kids and tell them how worthless they are in order to bring them uh, into cooperation with you, then you should not submit to your husband's leadership in that area. Submit to your husband as to the Lord. But it does mean something. And perhaps the best way to describe it is in all of life. As much as possible, he is responsible to lead. A key hint of what it means to follow, what it looks like to follow, is found in verse 24. Here's the comparison. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Well, what does it look like for the church to submit to Christ? We've seen much of that already in the first several chapters of Ephesians, but I want to just point back to two verses, verses 10 and 15 of chapter 5. Verse 10, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. In other words, there is a learning process here. There is an understanding of of what is actually valued by Jesus, that the church is in the process of learning, which means that the church's submission to Jesus is not robotic. It's not micromanaged. It's personal. And it's, it is a submission in which the church is all in and fully engaged and learning, using all of its capacities to figure out how can I best do this with everything Jesus has given me. Verse 15 also, rather, yeah, verse 15 encourages us to do this. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So the church is not a mindless body. This is not a robotic submission. This is a full person submission in in which we say, Jesus, we, we want to know where you're taking us, and we want to use everything that you've given us in order to go there with you. This is not a picture of micromanagement. Your role, if you're a wife, needs all of you. If you're filling out blanks, this is one of them. Your role needs all of you. If a husband enters marriage enters Christian marriage, signs up for Christian marriage because he believes that that's going to give him um, an advantage over his wife, then he's going to be sorely disappointed if he reads this passage and takes it seriously. If a husband thinks, I'm going to get into a Christian marriage because then I get to control my wife, then even by reading the passage about wives here, he should be sent screaming away from what he thinks he's signed up for. Like Martin Luther in the the thunderstorm early in his life, Martin Luther was walking along and this is before he knew Christ and he was caught in a thunderstorm and he was terrified and the thing that 
came to his mind to cry out was, help me, St. Anne, I'll become a monk. And any man who enters marriage with an attitude that I get to be in charge and I'm going to use it how I want to, will find himself caught in this thunderstorm if he takes the passage seriously. And while he shouldn't cry out to St. Anne, maybe should take some time first to be a monk because he's not ready for what he's entering. Your husband, if you're married, is supposed to lead like Jesus. And he's not Jesus. You probably know that. That's probably clear. He's not as good as Jesus, and he's not as smart as Jesus. It's also certainly possible that he's not as good as you, and that he's not as smart as you. And so, your husband, if he knows what he's doing, is going to lean on you, if you're his wife, is going to lean on your capacities, is going to say, you know things that I don't know. You have insights that I don't have. You have strengths that I don't have. And in order for me to do my job well, I need all of you. I don't need to tell you everything to do. I need all of your capacities with me, in partnership with me. So, what does that look like in such a way as to encourage your husband's leadership? Here's, here's what submission says for a Christian wife. As my husband leads our family, how can I use my God-given capacities to cooperate with and support and inform and energize his leadership? How can I help him? with everything that I am, because he needs everything that I am. There, there are a few specific ways to do that that I'd like to just mention this morning. One is, this is another blank, affirm what you can. Affirm what you can. Where your husband really does lead well, affirm that. Encourage him in it. Agree where you can. Submission does not require agreement. In fact, some, in some places in the Bible, we are called as believers to submit in ways where we really don't agree. Submission does not require agreement. But it does, agreement does help where you can do it. So where you're able to agree, agree. Where you disagree as much as possible, disagree in private, especially when it comes to the kids. If you can avoid it at all, do not contradict your husband uh, to the kids. If something needs to be dealt with, deal with it uh, privately so that you can do this together and so that he can carry out his role of leading. Don't complain about him, even in a joking way, to other people. Now, there may be real problems that need to be dealt with not to deal with those on your own, and we'll come back to that. Familiarize yourself and help him familiarize himself with his style of leadership. There are different styles of leadership. His style might be naturally different than your style. His style of leadership might be quiet and methodical, and sometimes frustratingly slow. 
his style of leadership might be uh, happy and energetic and sometimes feel like it's bossy. But there are different legitimate kinds of leadership. And so I would encourage you, if you're a wife, to try to ask the question, how is my husband wired to lead best? And then encourage that. You have an opportunity to help your husband. Bossing comes naturally to some people. Passively analyzing comes naturally to other people. Real leading doesn't really come naturally to anyone. Everybody who's responsible to lead has to learn how to do real, clear, gentle, effective leading. Your husband has to learn that. He's going to need your help. And you'll notice in this passage that you are not responsible to get your husband to lead. But you have great influence in helping him to do it. So as you do, one of the things that I want to encourage you to do is to pray a lot. That is probably the place where you have the greatest leverage. And the Lord has honored countless prayers of wives as they have seen their husbands leading in ways that are ineffective or not leading at all and calling on the Lord to do what they cannot do and actually seeing the Lord do it. It takes time. takes waiting. The Lord doesn't make specific promises about how he will answer, but he has answered and he does answer and he hears you. So here's where I want to stop and speak both to husbands and wives in between, about marriage in general. I have this under the section to wives, but this is for everyone. As I describe this picture of marriage in which two equally valuable and different roles are brought together in one place, and it's not always easy to do, here's what I want us to know. This is possible. This is one of the blanks if you're filling them out. This is possible, and the struggle is not Weird. This is possible, and the struggle is not weird. So, I want us all to know that healthy marriages really can happen today. Not in terms of arrival, but in terms of progress. There are marriages here, today, in this room, that are making progress toward greater and greater health where husbands and wives are experiencing the benefits of having made progress for a year, five years, or or ten years. They're in a better place now than they were back then. It really does happen. It's really not impossible. Just one example of that here that is commendable, and I hope will give all of us hope. I, I don't hear here at Grace the kind of sniping and sarcasm and the kind of I-gave-up-a-long-time-ago apathy that is all too common even in Christian marriages today. People complaining about their husband or about their wife. Uh, People acting as if, yeah, that's that's great in principle, but uh, there's, there's no hope for that. In our marriage, yeah, we basically just put up with each other. That that kind of talk happens a lot. I hear a different kind of talk here. I hear husbands and wives uh, caring for one another in the way that they speak about one another. 
I hear husbands describe how much they lean on the capacities of their wives. That is really to be commended here. It's a bigger deal than only the health that it brings to individual marriages or the hope that it brings to other marriages. We'll see what a big deal it is. But I want to commend you for that because by our culture's standards, it's not completely normal. Now, if you are in a marriage that you really do find to be unhealthy, then hearing that other people have healthy marriages might not bring you very much hope. It might just bring to your mind the idea that if only they knew, and I really don't want them to. What I really want you to know, husband, wife, if you're in a marriage that you really don't want other people to know about, the struggle that you're facing is not weird. You might think, if, if anybody hears about this, they're just going to gonna think, what in the world is wrong with me? What in the world is wrong with him or with her? What's wrong with us? I really don't want anybody to know about this. Can I just lay the first stepping stone of hope for you? It's not weird. You're not alone. You're not the only one. I would love to have the opportunity to express that to you. Uh, I want you to know that you are not alone. And so if you are really feeling alone, I would welcome the opportunity to start a conversation that you haven't been having yet. I'd welcome you to come to me and talk with me about where you're at. I don't have all the answers. You know that if you know me. I know that because I know me. But I am less and less and less surprised by the questions. There are so many challenging things that people face in life, and things are less and less surprising to me. And so I want to make myself available to you to stand in a place where you have said somebody does know, and the what if didn't actually happen. Uh, it may be that, that what needs to happen is I need to connect you with someone else who's got more experience than I do in order to get further help. But I want to encourage you, once you've gone through the appropriate steps, to talk to someone. It doesn't have to be me, but I'm giving you that invitation. Now, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Because the fact is that especially for wives, there are times when Submission will be very difficult to navigate. It will require a great deal of wisdom. It's going to be really hard, and it's not something that you should be forced to do on your own. So I want to encourage you, if you're in one of those places where you're saying, if only they knew, to start by praying and having bathed the situation in prayer to talk to your husband, to bring it up. The Lord will lead you to do it in a way that is wise, even if it is very scary. And watch for progress. Watch for progress. If you do not see progress, then I want to encourage you and urge you to find help from someone else. A trusted lady at church, one of the elders at church, including myself, if you have prayed and pursued your husband, and there is no progress. We want to encourage you to come to us. Here, here's one very clear indication that there is not progress. If your husband says, if you tell anybody, I'll leave you, 
you need to tell somebody. You need to tell someone. And I want to make two points of assurance here. One is that we will do our absolute best to extend the care of Christ to you in a very difficult situation. I'm making a commitment that you will not receive pat answers. You just need to fill in the blank. We want to care for you wholly. I also want to make an assurance to husbands. And I want wives to hear this now. I'm making an assurance to husbands that husbands, if you're being an unrepentant jerk and your wife comes to tell us about it, we will do our best to care for you. We want to help you to a restored place of fulfilling your responsibility in your marriage. Wives, hear me say that to husbands. Husbands, hear, yeah, hear, hear your husbands hear that from us. Because this is a fear often that, well, if I tell anybody, then my husband's just going to get kicked out of the church. And I don't want to do that. I can't do that to our family. We are about, even when we deal with sin, we are about restoration. We're about restoring one another. And I want wives who, if we're honest, are put in a place of greater vulnerability in so many ways to know that the, that the church is a genuinely safe place to get help. And often, help is needed, sometimes desperately needed. Now, on to husbands. We've, we've heard already, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to husbands in everything. Husband, wives should follow, therefore husbands should lead. But that's not what the text says. Husbands are supposed to lead, but leading is not the goal. That's a blank if you're filling it out. Leading is not the goal. In fact, the only place where we see leading even referred to is, on the, is in the passage that's directed to wives. It's not the, the, the thing that husbands are actually told to do. They're told to pursue the actual goal. <clears throat> Leadership is named, leadership is here, but it's not actually named. What husbands are told to do is this, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What was Jesus after when he gave himself up for the church? What was he pursuing? It's described in verses 26 and 27, he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ's goal was relationship. His goal was to bring the church into a place in which the church experienced unhindered relationship with himself. That's what's in the best interests of the church. And he didn't move the church there by demanding or controlling or manipulating or threatening. He did it by giving himself up. In this case, giving up his whole life, giving up his life. And in this passage, the Headship of Christ is not described in terms of what he requires of the church, but in terms of what he does for the church. 
and what he wants for the church. And we're told husbands should love their wives in the same way. Verse 28. So if submission calls for wisdom, then leading and loving giving of yourself to your wife requires wisdom as well. If you knew how to do this when you got married, you're the only one. This requires wise answers to two questions. Guys, here's where I want us to go with this. The, the, the questions, what's best for my wife and who is my wife? I want to take those in reverse order. The question, who is my wife? Now, there's a simple answer to that question. I trust you know the simple answer. Who is my wife? But who really is my wife? You know what her name is. You know what she looks like. But who is she? The first answer to the question is she is not you. She's not you. Have you ever stopped, guys, to consider the fact that under the surface of what you see in your wife's life is a whole wealth, a whole set of experiences and feelings and desires and fears and ways of processing things that's going on under the surface that you have absolutely no idea are happening. She is her own person in that sense. Everything that's going on inside of her in one sense happens independently of who you are. She's not you. And probably the way it all works inside of her is very, very different from the way that it works inside of you. And it's very natural for us guys when we see what happens on the outside to think, oh, I know where that came from. Because if that response, that word, that action came out in my life, I know where it would have come from. It came from a different person. It came from someone different. You've ever had the longing to call out to the pastor in the middle of a sermon, you're a moron, you're going to get a chance right now. Going back uh, about 20 years now, um, very early on in marriage, and uh, Amy had been out doing some shopping while I was home, uh, actually preparing to preach a sermon. So I didn't preach regularly, but I did once in a while. I think I was preaching on Psalm 107 and was bathing in concepts about God's sovereign care for his people. Getting excited about the concepts that I was learning and thinking, oh, this is going to be great. You know, things like this will preach well and things that an immature preacher tends to think. And then Amy came home and she had been out shopping. Uh, I think she was like looking for curtain rods or something like that. And, And she came home and she was just experiencing a little bit of frustration because she wasn't able to find what she was after for the price that she was hoping to pay. And uh, from the heights of my conceptual reveling in the sovereign care of God, I said something like, why does that matter? Now's your chance. Go ahead. (laughs) You're a moron. Yeah, that's right. What I did with the sovereign care of God at that point is is I, I took the little pebble of my understanding of the sovereign care of God and I plunked it off her forehead. And as you can imagine, and as you can sympathize, she didn't like it very much. And there was good reason for that. I was not extending the sovereign care of God to her. I was throwing little things at her. 
In fact, uh, I was processing her concern out of what it would be like for me if I had been out looking for curtain rods and came home without finding out finding what I was looking for, then big concepts about the sovereign care of God would have worked for me. But it's not because I had a history of walking under the sovereign care of God. It's because I don't care about curtain rods. That's not what's inside of me. We'll come back to this scenario in just a minute. (sighs) Know your wife well. Can I recommend just one tool to you as a treasure map? It's imperfect, but it's fun. And it's a way of putting words to maybe what's going on under the surface. It's a website called 16personalities.com. It's based on the Myers-Briggs quadrant. Imperfect, but can be very helpful. Might be good for a date night to help you develop a list of questions for her that explore what's going on under the surface for you. Question two, what's best for my wife? What's best for my wife? As you discover your wife, you will find some things. You'll find some things. You are going to find Riches that you didn't even know were there. You're going to find that there is intelligence and strength that you didn't know she had and that you don't have. You're going to find that she values things that you didn't realize were valuable and that are and that you need. You're going to find that she has the capacity to help your leadership in ways that you didn't even know you needed. And you're going to find things that she needs. This is one of the best ways to figure out what's best for my wife is knowing who is she and what does she need right now. If I was not a moron in the curtain rod conversation, what would I have done instead? Well, I would have stopped, first of all. I would have resisted the temptation to jump to whatever solution would work for me in the moment. It's not the right one for her. What would I have done instead? I would have stopped, I would have set aside what I was focusing on at the time, and I would have said, tell me about it. What are you looking for? What did you find? Where did you go? Not in order to say, oh, you should have gone here instead, but to hear what was your experience and what was it like for you? And that may very well simply result in in, in Amy feeling from me a little extension of the sovereign care of God in life to her. To know that even her imperfect husband cares, and that's a picture of the sovereign care of God that I was getting ready to preach on. I might find that she's really, really stressed about it. That this actually is a far bigger deal than I could ever imagine, and she's just really having trouble wrapping her head about around this challenge because there's more reason for it than I knew. What do I do at that point as a husband who doesn't really relate to this concern? I focus on the thing that Jesus has focused on. What was Jesus' goal for his church? It was relationship. It was to bring the church into trusting communion with himself. And as a husband, that's my first responsibility for my wife. To lead her to the throne of grace. To receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Practical sense, what does this mean? Well, probably it means that I pray with her. Before I try to say anything to her, I say, let's, let's talk to the Lord about this. To come to the Lord, and it can be in a very simple way. Lord, we don't know what to do about this. Would you please help us? It's also an opportunity to say, Lord, you have given my wife 
a vision for creating a home that is welcoming to people. That is so good. I'm so bad at that. Would you honor that vision and give her the things that she needs in order to aesthetically prepare that home? Would you help with this? Husbands, I just want to encourage you in a more general way to make praying with your wife a priority. It can start as a very simple priority. Maybe it's every night. This might be something that is very frightening to you. Uh, So if it is, I would encourage you to start very simply. To pray with your wife. Maybe it's before you go to sleep. Uh, Lord, thank you for watching over us today. Would you watch over us tonight and help us to remember you in the morning? It's okay to pray like that. It's okay to pray very simply. You do not have to use big words. You don't have to use flowery ideas. But I want to encourage you to lead your wife to the throne of grace. I want to encourage you to care for her well in that way. What's the point? Here's the big point. We're going to celebrate the big point in just a minute. Here's the point. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now, in one sense, it's very easy to to tell a husband, you should love your wife as your own body because he knows what that means. He knows what it means to love his own body. I care about it. I don't want it to be in pain. Uh, I nourish and cherish my own body. And so in that sense, it's an easy thing for him to understand. But there's something much bigger at stake. This is what Jesus does for us because we are joined to him as one. That might sound new, but it's not. It's actually very old. And so Paul quotes one of the oldest passages in Scripture when he gives the description of what this is all about. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis 2.24. Here's God having brought a woman to a man And they're joined together and God says, this is a pattern of how marriage is going to work in the future. They are going to be joined together as one, as one flesh. They are one with one another. And when Jesus describes this later, he says, this is not mainly a decision that a husband and wife make to become one. They don't make themselves one. They choose in many cases to be married, but they don't make themselves one. So that's why Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no one tear apart. And there's a point that's bigger than marriage. And it's here in this passage. This mystery, this mystery of two people becoming one is profound. And there's something about it that's only revealed now here in this verse. And that is, what is it ultimately about? It's about... Jesus and his relationship with the church. God has described himself in terms of marriage in relationship with his people for many years. And yet that relationship hasn't been pictured in this way because his people have been so unfaithful. But this picture of a man and his wife becoming one 
finds an ultimate and complete fulfillment because of what Jesus has done. There is a place where two become one in unhindered relationship, and that place is in the relationship of Jesus with his church. So if you're not married, you get to be a part of this as well, because you get to be a part of the bride that's joined to Christ. If you are a husband, you have the privilege of being a part of this. You have the privilege of giving yourself to your wife, giving yourself to her as she is for her best interests, for a purpose that's bigger than yourself, in order to show the saving love of Jesus for his people. And if you're a wife, then you have the privilege of following your husband's parallel role, his role in leading you. You may have the privilege of following a husband who who does that well. You may have the challenge of following a husband who does it poorly. In any event, God is personally concerned to help you to demonstrate the truth of the gospel, to demonstrate that in the end, Jesus is trustworthy as you trust him in your role. The whole picture of marriage, husbands loving their wives, wives respecting their husband, is in the end about demonstrating the saving love of Jesus for his people and their response to him. Father, you have said in your word that those who are married will have trouble. You've been clear about that. And you haven't left that having the last word. You have given us hope that our marriage is about something bigger than ourselves. So I pray that you would help us to take on that hope, to live in the beautiful corresponding roles that you've given us in such a way as to show the saving love of Christ for his people. Would you do this in Jesus' name? Amen.